Volume One, Chapter Nine of Willard's Weird by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Thompson. Chapter Nine, Fever Dreams. Edward Heathcote left Waterloo Station for Southampton within an hour of leaving Mr. Distin's office, dined hastily at the Dolphin Hotel, and started for St. Malo in the southwestern steamer at seven o'clock in the evening it was still early on the following morning when he landed on the long stone quay at st malo and the picturesque old granite walls were still flushed with the rosy light of a newly risen sun the quaint island citadel with its exquisite bay and golden sands had been familiar to edward heathcote in the past he had lingered here to rest after a long ramble in brittany and he had an affection for the steep narrow streets and quaint old houses with their all-pervading aspect of the seventeenth century the days of bourbons and condes kings and warriors princely priests and priestly politicians much as he loved the old world town heathcote had no intention of loitering there on this september morning lovely as the bay and the rocks and the smiling colony of white-walled villas yonder at parame looked in the early sunlight he only waited to get his portmanteau through the custom-house in order to carry it to the little office attached to the dinan steamer where he ascertained the hour for the boat's departure chance and tide favoured him the steamer was to leave at eleven o'clock this afforded time for a leisurely breakfast at the franklin and would enable him to reach dinan early in the afternoon he breakfasted briefly and temperately as became a man whose mind was full of anxious thought and then went for a stroll in the old streets and looked in at the cathedral he had reflected seriously upon his interview with the criminal lawyer the fact that he had found his own original opinion about bothwell graham shared by this man so deeply versed in the ways of criminals in the science of circumstantial evidence was to the last degree startling and disconcerting he felt that he was setting out upon a task which he could but perform in a half-hearted manner struggle as he might against that first conviction of his he had undertaken his task for hilda's sake for dora's sake what misery must result if joseph distin were right after all and in an ill-judged attempt to gratify these two trusting women he should bring about the discovery of bothwell's guilt that guilt was at present but a dark suspicion which men hardly dared hint to each other but if distin's judgment was correct any unlucky discovery might make the suspicion a fact but he had promised and the pledge must be kept he must follow up the clue which he held till it led him to other links in the chain of the victim's history and the chances were that in the victim's history he would find a clue to the murderer's identity it was a lovely autumnal noontide and the gay little town of dinar with its gardens rising stage above stage on the slope of the hill its queer little bays and recesses of golden sand was smiling in sunlight as the ile rance steamed across the broad bay of saint malo to the mouth of the rance there are few prettier rivers than this little Rhine of Brittany, and Edward Heathcote had loved it well in days gone by, 
but today he sat upon the bridge smoking his cigar and gazing at the green hills and hanging woods the villas and villages and craggy cliffs and ever-varying shore without seeing the objects upon which his eyes seemed to rest the nearer he came to the task of investigation the more irksome became his duty his heart failed him as he took out the silver locket and read the name upon the paper inside it was the name of the woman who was to enlighten him about the dead girl who was perhaps to put in his hand the clue which would lead him straight to the murderer and yet who could say that he would find sister gudule de la misericorde at dinan he did not even know the name of the convent in which she lived she might be dead and yet the date of the inscription was but two years old there was every chance that the sister still lived and he must be dull if he failed to find her he stopped at the first church to which he came after leaving the boat an old church in the lower part of the town here he asked his way to the presbytery and called upon the priest who told him that there was only one educational convent in dinan the convent of st elizabeth of hungary an ursuline convent situated in a quiet corner of the town mr heathcote left his portmanteau at one of the hotels in the market-place and drove at once to the convent it was a large white building with plastered walls far from beautiful in itself and showing every sign of poverty but the gardens were neatly kept the rooms were exquisitely clean and the clumsy old breton furniture was polished to the highest degree mr heathcote was received in the convent parlour by the reverend mother a homely little tub-shaped personage in a black serge habit and a picturesque white cap which concealed every vestige of hair upon her broad intelligent forehead she had kindly black eyes and a frank benevolent smile and heathcote felt at once at his ease with her she looked a little disappointed when in answer to her preliminary question he told her that he had not come to offer a new pupil the pupils were the chief source of revenue for the convent albeit the pension was of the smallest have you ever seen that locket before madame he asked laying the silver medallion before the reverend mother i have seen many such she answered the holy father allows us to dispose of them for the benefit of the convent there is a little paper inside with some writing will you look at it please she opened the locket and unfolded the paper yes this is sister gudule's writing i know it very well indeed said the nun looking at her visitor with a puzzled air as if wondering whether the gentleman had not gone a little astray his real destination being the great monastic madhouse yonder on the crest of the wooded hill sister gudule is still living still with you perhaps yes interrogatively and you remember Leonie, to whom that little picture was given? The Reverend Mother smiled her modest smile. Leonie is not an uncommon name, she replied. We have had many pupils so called from time to time. Our school numbers over a hundred and fifty pupils, you must remember. Do you recall any pupil of that name who left you two years ago? asked Heathcote. We have from thirty to forty pupils leaving us every year. Will you permit me to ask the object of your inquiry? It is a very serious one, or I should be desolated to give you so much trouble, 
answered heathcote courteously in that polite language which he spoke almost as fluently as his native english the poor girl to whom that locket belonged met her death in my neighbourhood less than two months ago she fell from a railway carriage as the train was crossing a viaduct whether that death was accidental or the result of a crime remains as yet unknown but there are those in my country to whom it is vital that the whole truth should be known if you can help me to discover the truth you will be helping the cause of justice sister gudule will remember said the reverend mother ringing a bell she is one of our lay sisters a great favorite with all the children she nurses them when they are ill and takes care of them when they go out for a holiday and plays with them as if she were a child herself a lay sister the portress answered the bell and went in quest of sister gudule she has a very unprepossessing appearance said the reverend mother i fear you may be a little shocked at first seeing her but she is so amiable that we all adore her she has been the victim of misfortune from her cradle her deformity is the consequence of a nurse's carelessness it turned the heart of her mother against her and she was a neglected and unloved child her family was noble but the husband speculated in railways and the wife was silly and extravagant by the time gudule was a young woman poverty had overtaken her father and he was only too glad to acquiesce in the girl's resolution to enter a convent she came to us penniless thirty years ago and has worked for her bread ever since i do not think i exaggerate when i say that she is the most valuable member of our community the door was opened softly and sister gudule appeared this little preface from the reverend mother had not been unnecessary to lessen the shock of her personal appearance which was startling in its unqualified ugliness sister gudule de la misericorde was the very type of the wicked fairy in the dear old child stories she was short and squat with broad shoulders and a decided hump she had a nose like a potato and a lower lip like that of the lady who moistened the spinster's yarn she had an undeniable moustache and beard yet in spite of all there was something pleasant conciliating reassuring in her face the low broad forehead suggested intellectual power there was a humorous twinkle in the small gray eyes as of one who could revel in a joke a thick underlip and prominent under jaw were the indications of a boundless benevolence the reverend mother handed the locket and its enclosure to sister gudule i must tell you that the sister has a most miraculous memory she said confidentially to heathcote I have never known her forget the most trivial event in the history of our lives she is our unwritten calendar it is leonie lemarque's locket said sister gudule how comes it here is my little leonie in dinan leonie lemarque how glibly she pronounced the name and how strange it seemed to edward heathcote to hear it like a name out of a tomb the owner of that locket is dead he answered gently dead leonie lemarque dead at twenty years old dead why there was not a healthier child in the convent after we had once built up her constitution she was in a sad way when she came to us leonie lemarque repeated the reverend mother 
I never thought of her when monsieur showed me the locket Leonie Lamarque Yes, she left us in 1879 to go to her old grandmother in Paris and now she has met with a violent death in England Monsieur will tell you Monsieur repeated his story this time with further details for sister Gudule questioned him closely She would have every particular The tears streamed down her cheeks hung upon her bristly moustache. She was deeply distressed You don't know how I love that child she said excusing herself to the superior and then to Heathcote Ah, monsieur, you could never understand how I loved her. I saved her life from the weakest frailest creature I made her a sound and healthy child Indeed I may say that I did much more than this with the help of God and the intercession of his Saints I saved her mind It is quite true said the Reverend Mother the child came to us under most peculiar circumstances Sister Gudule took entire charge of her for the first year and she rewarded me tenfold for my trouble added Gudule. she gave me love for love measure for measure will you tell me all about her every detail the knowledge may help me to avenge her death said heathcote eagerly it is my belief and the belief of others that she was foully murdered he was intensely agitated he felt as if he had taken into his hand the lever which worked some formidable machine an instrument of death and doom and that every movement of his hand might bring destruction Yet the process once begun must go on he was no longer an individual working of his own free will He was only an agent in the hands of fate Willingly we will tell you all we can said the Reverend Mother But you must allow us to offer you a little coffee you have traveled and you look white and weary the convent was proud of its coffee almost the only refreshment ever offered to visitors The portress brought a little oval tray covered with a snowy white napkin a little brown crockery pot a white cup and saucer all of the humblest but spotlessly clean Leonie was with us eight years said the Reverend Mother while sister Gudule dried her eyes and tried to regain her composure she was just ten years old when she was brought to us by her grandmother a person who had been at one time a dressmaker in one of the most fashionable quarters of Paris but who had fallen upon evil days and lived in a very humble way in a small lodging on the left bank of the Seine Leonie was an orphan the daughter of Madame Lamarck's only son who had died young broken-hearted at the death of his young wife the child was brought to us by a priest who came all the way from Paris with his little charge She had but just recovered from a long illness which was said to be brain fever caused by a very terrible mental shock Which he had endured two months before Were you told the nature of that shock? No, the priest did not offer any information upon that point and I did not presume to question him he assured me that the cause was one which merited the most benevolent consideration Madame Lamarque had no means of educating the child herself nor could she afford the pension Demanded by a Parisian convent The curé thought that our fine air would do much to restore the child to health and strength And he knew that our system of education was calculated to develop her mind and character in the right direction he guaranteed the regular payment of the child's pension 
and we never had occasion to apply for it a second time did madame lemarque ever come to see her granddaughter never leonie remained with us from year's end to year's end till after her eighteenth birthday when at madame lemarque's desire we made arrangements for her travelling to paris with other pupils who were returning to the great city then you never saw madame lemarque never nor ever heard from her directly oh yes we had letters very nicely written letters full of gratitude for what madame lemarque was pleased to call our kindness to leonie the child used to write to her grandmother monthly while she was with us and her letters were the best evidence that she was fairly used and happy she was a sweet child said gudule and deserved every indulgence did she ever tell you anything about the shock which caused her illness asked heathcote of the lay sister in her right senses never one syllable answered gudule i would not have questioned her upon that subject for worlds for i believed that she had narrowly escaped madness but during the six months in which i nursed her for her health was completely broken and it required all that time to build up her strength and calm her nerves she used to sleep in a little bed close to mine and in her troubled dreams i used to hear very strange things how far the dreams were inspired by the recollections of real events i cannot venture to say but there were phrases that recurred so often a horrible vision which so continually repeated itself like a scene in a play that i can but suppose it to have been the representation of some event which had really happened before the child's waking eyes can you recall the nature of that vision inquired heathcote breathlessly it seemed to him that he was on the threshold of a new mystery as terrible as the old one and even darker a tragedy hidden in the past reflected only in a child's fever dream you should ask me if i can ever forget it monsieur said sister gudule i wish with all my heart that i could i have prayed many a prayer for oblivion the poor child used to be feverish every night a low fever which only came on in the evening but some nights were worse than others and in her most feverish nights this dream seemed almost inevitable i used to lie awake expecting it dreading it she used to talk in her sleep then to talk yes and to scream a terrible shriek sometimes which would disturb every sleeper in the great dormitory adjoining my little room she would start up on her pillow and stare straight before her with wide open eyes being fast asleep all the time you understand don't kill her don't kill her she would cry don't shoot her and then she would rock herself backwards and forwards and moan in a low voice the forest the dark dark forest she is there always there with the blood running down her dress take her away take away the dark forest take away the blood her words varied sometimes but those words never take away the dark forest take away the blood and did she never tell you what the dream meant you her nurse and comforter with whom she must have been on such confidential terms no dear child she loved me and trusted me with all the strength of her innocent heart i believe but she never told me the cause of that awful dream and i never dared to question her i was only anxious that she should forget the past that if her nights were fevered and restless her days should be peaceful and bright i did everything i could to amuse and interest her in studies needlework and play 
and to help her to forget the past and you succeeded sister said the head of the convent approvingly i never saw a more wonderful cure from a nervous hysterical child leonie lamarque grew into a bright merry girl yes with god's help she was cured but the cure was very slow the shock which shattered her health and for a time impaired her mind must have been an awful one never before had i seen gray hairs upon the head of a child but the thickly curling hair upon leonie's temples when she came to us was patched with white and it was years before the hair resumed its natural color for the first year her memory was almost a blank it would have been useless for anyone to attempt to teach her in class with the other children she would have been despised as an idiot laughed at perhaps and her heart broken i obtained the reverend mother's permission to keep her in my room and to teach her in my own way and little by little i awakened her memory and her mind both had been as it were benumbed frozen paralyzed by that awful shock of which we know so little but you would guess that she had witnessed some dreadful scene perhaps the death of someone she loved speculated heathcote did she never talk to you of her childhood in paris her relatives rarely of anyone except her grandmother answered sister gudule and of her she told me very little whether her illness had blotted out the memory of her childhood or whether she shrank from any allusion to the past i cannot tell one day i asked her who had given her a blue satin neckerchief which i found in her trunk a costly neckerchief and much too fine for a child to wear she told me that it was a new year's gift from her aunt but at the mention of the name she turned deadly pale her eyes filled with tears and her whole body shook like an aspen leaf i changed the conversation that moment and i never again heard her speak of her aunt you would infer from her agitation that the aunt was connected with the tragedy of the child's life yes monsieur was perhaps the person whom she saw assailed when she cried out don't kill her don't shoot her I have thought that it must have been so that dreadful cry of her take away the blood take away the dark forest No one who did not hear those cries of hers No one who did not see the awful expression of her eyes staring dilated full of horror No one who has not seen and heard her as I did could ever understand how dreadful How real that vision was to me as well as to the sleeper I used to feel as if I had seen murder done and had stood by without the power to prevent it in a word you felt by pure sympathy almost exactly what the child felt said heathcote already he had begun to adore sister gudule just as the children of the convent adored her he forgot her hump he forgave her the potato-shaped nose he accepted her beard as a detail that gave piquancy to her countenance he was subdued subjugated by that intensely sympathetic nature which revealed itself in every word and look of the lay sister but he had a task to perform and it was necessary that he should proceed with his inquiries in a business-like manner he had already taken certain notes in his pocket-book leonie lamarque left you in eighteen seventy nine and she had been with you eight years he said with pencil in hand she must have come to you in 1871 yes it was in 1871 not long after the troubles in paris it was early in november she was brought to us 
and you were told that she had been ill two months in consequence of a mental shock yes then one may fairly conclude that the event which caused her illness occurred early in the september of eighteen seventy one i think so good i thank you most heartily madame with a courteous bow to the reverend mother for the help you and sister goodule have so graciously bestowed upon me but i would venture to ask one more favour namely that you would honour me with a line by way of introduction to the worthy priest who brought leonie lamarque from paris alas monsieur that is impossible father sorbier died three years ago just a year before leonie left us that is unfortunate he doubtless knew the mystery of the girl's childhood and perhaps might have helped me to unravel the secret of her strange death do you really believe that the two events have any bearing upon each other monsieur demanded sister goudule thoughtfully i know not madame replied heathcote but it is only by working backwards that i can hope to arrive at any clue to the mystery which has puzzled us all in cornwall that poor girl must have had some purpose in going to england in travelling to so remote a neighbourhood as ours even if her death were an accident or an unpremeditated crime her presence in that place cannot have been accidental mr heathcote asked to see the classrooms and the chapel before he left the convent a request which was graciously accepted as a compliment to the reverend mother he was paraded along wide and airy passages and was shown an empty refectory where plates and mugs and huge piles of bread and butter were arranged on long deal tables covered with snow-white linen in readiness for the afternoon goûter he saw the chapel with its humble decorations its somewhat crude copy of a well-known guido its altar rich in gilded paper home-made lace and cheap china vases all here spoke of small means but the flowers on the altar were freshly gathered and the neatness and cleanliness of all things in chapel and convent charmed the stranger's eye he slipped a couple of sovereigns into the box by the door praised the airy corridors the spacious whitewashed rooms and left the principal and the lay sister alike charmed with his good french and his friendly manners the clock of the monastery on the opposite hill was striking five as he drove away from the convent a silvery chime that could be heard all over dinan he dined at the table d'hote at the hotel de la poste and walked on the terrace on the town walls after dinner there is no fairer view in brittany than the panorama of wooded hills from that walk above the town walls the cool night air the silvery moonlight soothed edward heathcote's nerves he was able to meditate upon his afternoon's work to think over the story he had heard from sister goudule and to speculate upon the chances of his being able to follow up this thread of a life history until it led him to some point which would throw a light upon the mystery of leonie lemarque's death reflecting upon sister goudule's story he could but conclude that the child leonie had been the witness of some scene of violence in which a woman had been the victim a murder possibly or it might be only an attempted murder blood had been spilt hence that awful cry take away the blood take away the dark forest a child's appeal to some unknown power to remove an object of terror one and only one clue had he obtained from sister goudule as to the person of the victim and even that indication might be a false light leading him astray 
the girl's painful emotion at the utterance of her aunt's name suggested that the victim had been that aunt the mere mention of the name would conjure up all the horror of that scene which had so nearly wrecked the child's reason it therefore seemed plain to heathcote's mind that a murder or an attempt at murder had been committed in a dark wood and that the victim had been leonie lemarque's aunt so deeply interested was he in this mystery of ten years back so powerfully moved by this strange story of a child's suffering that he almost forgot that the business which had brought him across the channel was to find out the true story of the french girl's death and not to unravel the mystery of this old and perhaps forgotten crime in the unknown wood so interested was he that he resolved at any cost of trouble to himself to discover the details of the scene reproduced so often in the child's fevered dreams who knows whether that may not be the surest way of arriving at the truth about the girl's death he argued with himself at any rate it is the only way that offers itself at present he walked late upon the wards of dinan enjoying the quiet of the moonlit scene hearing the bells chime again and again silver clear across the vale from the monastery where the madmen were dreaming their disjointed dreams or wandering sane and healed in the spirit land of the past amid the faces of friends long dead he walked late thinking of a face that had looked at him with trusting eyes in the moment of parting loving eyes whose every expression he knew but most of all that tender pathetic look which had once tried to soothe the agony of loss to serve her and work for her surely that is enough for a man's bliss he thought with a sad half satirical smile in the good old days of chivalry her knight would have deemed it happiness to bleed and perish for her sake far away in palestine glory and honour enough to have worn her colours in his helmet are we a meaner race we men of the present that we cannot love without hope of reward well i have pledged myself to my crusade i have put on my lady's colours and i will work for her as faithfully as if my love were not hopeless i will prove to her that there is some chivalry still left in this degenerate world under the modern guise of disinterested friendship he started for paris by the first train next morning a fourteen hours journey a journey of dust and weariness though the road lay through a fair country with glimpses of blue sea and then by the widening river till the tall houses and many church towers of the great city glimmered whitely before him under the september moon he put up at his old resting-place the hotel de bade amidst the roar and hustle of the boulevard and he set out the next morning after an early breakfast in quest of monsieur Drubard's apartment which was situated in that older and shabbier paris of the left bank monsieur Drubard's apartment was on the quai des grands augustins au cinquième a rather alarming indication to infirm or elderly legs but which did not appall edward heathcote he ran up the five flights of a dark wooden staircase and found himself upon an airy landing lighted and ventilated by a skylight the skylight was half open and through it heathcote saw flowers and greenery upon the roof he also caught the odour of a very respectable cigar which the soft west wind blew towards him through the same opening on a door opposite the top of the steep fifth flight appeared a brass plate with the name felix drubard heathcote rang 
and his summons was answered almost instantly from an unexpected direction a large round rubicund face peered through the skylight and a voice asked if monsieur desired an interview with felix drubard i have come here in that hope monsieur answered heathcote and i venture to infer that i have the honour of addressing monsieur drubard i am that individual monsieur replied the rubicund gentleman opening the skylight to its widest extent would it be too much to ask you to ascend to my summer salon upon the leads it is pleasanter even for a business interview than the confinement of four walls there was a steep straight ladder against the wall immediately under the skylight heathcote mounted this and emerged upon the roof face to face with felix drubard the retired police officer's appearance was essentially rustic his attire resembled the holiday costume of the station de bain rather than the normal garb of a great busy metropolis he was clothed from head to foot in white linen his garments were all of the loosest and he wore a pair of ancient buff slippers which had doubtless trodden the bitter biting foam on the beach of dieppe or the sands of trouville altogether monsieur Dubard looked the very picture of comfort and coolness on this warm september morning he had made for himself a garden upon an open space of flat leaded roof which was belted round with ancient chimney stacks of all shapes and sizes just as a lawn is girdled with good old oaks and beeches on one side of his garden he had rigged up a light latticework from chimney to chimney and his nasturtiums and virginia creepers had clothed the lattice with green and gold this he called his allée verte and he declared that it reminded him of fontainebleau in the days of the famous diana his garden was gorgeous with geraniums and roses and perfumed with mignonette and honeysuckle he had his morning coffee on a little iron table he had a wicker-work easy-chair for himself and another for a friend and a smart rug of the usual gaudy pattern to be seen in french lodging-houses was spread under his slippered feet he had his cigars and his newspaper and above all he had a large and ancient black poodle of uncanny appearance which looked as if he were the very dog under whose semblance the arch-fiend visited dr faustus before seating himself in the basket-chair which monsieur drubard offered him heathcote took joseph distin's letter out of his pocket-book and handed it to the ex-police officer who became convulsive with rapture when he saw the signature monsieur was welcome on his own account as a doubtless distinguished englishman as the friend of monsieur distin he is more than welcome his visit is an honour a privilege which an old member of the paris police cannot too highly value said drubard with enthusiasm ah monsieur what a man is that joseph distin what a commanding genius i have had the honour to assist him in cases where that mighty intellect revealed itself with startling force and where i am proud to say he must inevitably have failed but for my humble assistance yes monsieur old drubard has a flair which even your great english lawyer envies what a man all the same monsieur drubard paused for breath and also to offer mr heathcote a cigar which was frankly accepted and then the police officer continued his eulogy of the english lawyer with which he contrived to interweave a little gentle egotism had he been a frenchman and lived under the first emperor he would have been greater than the duke of otranto whom my father had the privilege to serve and whom i remember seeing when i was a child 
my father took me into the great chief's office one day a little toddling creature chubby and i am told beautiful in my little uniform of the old guard a mother's fond fancy monsieur the mothers of france love to make gracious pictures of their children the duke laid his hand upon my golden curls what a lovely boy he exclaimed deeply moved by my infantine beauty i prophesy a brilliant future for him the child will go far i hope monsieur that my afterlife has not belied the great man's prophecy mr distin assures me that you have won distinction in your calling replied heathcote wondering how long the old gentleman's recollections of childhood were going to last your narrative takes me back to a period that is classical it assures me also that you who so vividly remember the events of sixty years ago more than sixty monsieur i am past seventy years of age i who speak to you mr heathcote put on an appropriate expression of wonder with such a memory for the remote past it will hardly trouble you to recall the events of ten years ago he continued very eager to come to the point now exactly ten years ago in this very month of september there was a brutal murder or attempted murder of a woman in a wood near paris do you mean the murder of marie preval the actress in the forest of st germain inquired the police officer i was engaged in that case a very strange story and the woman was really murdered asked heathcote pale with agitation he was confounded by the ease with which a man fixed upon a notorious crime upon a given date it would have surprised him less to find that the child's vision of murder was a mere fever dream the repetition of some morbid hallucination than to hear of the reality off-hand in the broad light of day really murdered yes and her lover too as dead as the pharaohs there never was a more genuine crime a more determined murder the actress and her lover had gone to st germain for a holiday jaunt they went by rail dined at the henri quatre hired a carriage in the cool of the evening drove on the terrace and then into the forest they left the carriage at a point where there were crossroads and pursued their ramble on foot there was a child with them interrogated heathcote breathlessly yes a little girl the actress's niece she was the only witness of the crime it was from her lips that the juge d'instruction took down the history of the scene they were walking quietly in the twilight it was nearly dark the child said and she was beginning to feel frightened the lovers were walking arm in arm the child by her aunt's side suddenly a man sprang out upon them from the darkness of the wood and confronted them with a pistol in his hand he wore no hat and he looked wild and furious he aimed first at the man who fell without a groan the girl had just time to call out to him not to shoot her aunt when he fired a second time and then a third and a fourth and again quicker than the child could count it was evidently a six-chambered revolver marie prévol was found with her breast riddled with bullets the driver heard the shots from his post at the crossroads and was the murderer never found never in spite of his wild appearance and his bare head he got clean off and all the police of paris failed in tracing him but was there no one suspected of the crime yes there was a former lover of marie's her first lover and it was said the only man she had ever really cared for they had been a devoted couple were supposed by some to be married and until a short time before the murder 
Marie's character had been considered almost stainless. Then a young admirer appeared on the scene. There were violent quarrels. The actress seemed to have lost her head, to be infatuated by this aristocratic lover, one of the handsomest men in Paris. She had known him only a few months when they went for this jaunt to Saint-Germain, a stolen adventure. They were supposed to have been followed by the other man, and that the murder was an act of jealous madness. And the crime was never brought home to him? Never. Beyond the fact of his relations with Mademoiselle Prévon, and of his disappearance immediately after the murder, there was nothing to connect him with the crime. I thought it was difficult, indeed almost impossible, for any man to leave France without the knowledge of the police. It is difficult, and at that time it was particularly difficult, as the crimes of the Commune were still of recent date, and the police were more than usually alert. But this man did. All the great railway stations and seaports were closely watched for the appearance of such a man among the departures, but he was never identified. And you have no doubt in your own mind that this man was the murderer? Not a shadow of doubt. There was no one else who had any motive for assailing Marie and her admirer. Except in her relations with these two, she had been propriety itself. Unless you can imagine a motiveless maniac dashing through a wood and shooting the first comer, you can hardly conceive any other cause than jealousy for such a crime as this. Do you remember the name of the man who was suspected? Not at this moment, but I have the whole history of the case in my workshop below, and if you would like to read it, there are details that might interest you. I should like much to read it. End of chapter 9